Last Sunday, we heard... Uh, the story we heard was uh, Jesus on his way back from Jerusalem to Galilee. Things were getting a bit hot for him in, in Jerusalem, so he was going back to his home base. And in Samaria, he spent some time talking to a marginalised woman. Between what we heard last week and what we hear this week, he's returned to Jerusalem, the festival of the Jews, where he healed a lame person on the Sabbath and got the Pharisees a little titchy. And then he returned to Galilee and now he's gone back to Jerusalem, this time for the last time. So we move pretty quickly from what we heard today in chapter 9 through a few more stories to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the events that we call Holy Week. This is a hard reading for us for a whole lot of reasons. Things get in the way. You could say that we are blind when we read this reading. We bring our own assumptions about how the world works and we are blind to the worldview and the assumptions of those who were living in the story and for whom the story was recorded. For a start, we have scientific and medical eyes. And so we know, some of us more than others, how eyes work. And we know that the kind of things that cause blindness are damage to the eyes or bugs getting into the eyes, not sin or possession, which is what people in Jesus' time thought. And we know what light is. We kind of know what light is. If you're looking for a particle, then you'll find a particle, and if you're looking for a wave, you'll find a wave. But apart from that... We know what light is. It's a particle wave. That's a highly technical physical term, by the way. And we certainly know that light is not a physical substance, just as we know that darkness isn't a physical substance. And we certainly understand that light is something that is external to us, unlike the people of Jesus' time, who thought that it was something that resided within us, that shone through our eyes and allowed us to see. For us, light is out there, shining in, but for people in Jesus' time and for John's hearers, light was something that was in you, that shone out and allowed you to see. And we know that disease and illness are the same thing. And they cause you to be blind. And that they have specific causes. Bugs and such. And we know that they're not caused by sin or possession. And we know that they can be or can't be treated by cunning scientific methods. We certainly would never call disease... Something that causes you to be cast out from all your social relationships. Theologically, this is a hard reading. We don't tend to blame people for being blind. We don't see blind people and say, well, that's because you're a sinner. We have good explanations to why people are blind. Although, 
if we're honest, we do at times seem to blame people for being unemployed or sickness beneficiaries, but apart from things like that, we tend not to blame people for their circumstances. And so these are hard readings, these stories. We could say that we are blind when we read these stories. The story begins with the question, who sinned? And Jesus says, no one, no one sinned. This happened so that God could be glorified. And then he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light that resides within each of you and allows people to really see. And then he heals the man both of his blindness, where we kind of get stuck. But more importantly, he heals him and restores him to his family and his friends, his neighbours, his community, and to God. The disease, the real thing that was the problem here. And then there's a conversation between some of those people and the man who are a little confused about whether this really is the man because now he can see and he's always been the blind man. And then the Pharisees get in on the act and the once blind man is asked by them who healed him and it turns out they're a little titchy because, well, Jesus has done this on the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And no one is supposed to do anything on the Sabbath, the Shabbat, especially heal people. And it turns out the once blind man is still a little blind because although he knows Jesus' name, he really doesn't know what he looks like and he certainly doesn't know where he is. And then in the ensuing conversation, it turns out that the Pharisees are also blind because they are not willing to see Jesus as the light that would allow them to see. In fact, they say, we know this man is a sinner. Give glory to God instead. They are blinded by their assumptions, their rules, the frameworks by which they understand the world by their adherence to rules. And they cannot see. And then the man who was previously known as the blind man, well, he's beginning to see even more and he's becoming a lot less cooperative. He says, and he's talking to Pharisees here, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this person were not from God, he could do nothing. To which they answer, Well, you were born entirely in sin, so what do you know? And you are trying to teach us, Pharisees, learned people, who know everything. And they drove him out. So here we are at the end of the story. And the blind sinner at the beginning of the story is now the one who sees. And the ones who think they see have become the blind sinners. 
which was made abundantly clear in the final conversation with the now seeing man. So where are we in this story? Surely we are not blind, are we? Over the last two weeks, I've talked a lot about prayer. And I've said that ultimately, prayer is not saying lots of words. Although sometimes saying words is important when we're praying for ourselves or for others. I've said that ultimately, praying is listening. Or if we translate that into this week's reading, praying is seeing. Learning to see. We could say, based on today's reading, that prayer is learning to see so that we might be ranked amongst the blind sinners who now see. So, like the blind man, we might be restored to God and our families and our communities. Last week I offered the idea of praying with scripture as a way to listen, to see, sacred reading. This week I want to talk about another way of listening, another way of seeing, another way of seeing ourselves, another way of seeing God at work in us and the world we live in. A little thing called the daily examine. The Daily Examine comes out of the teaching of one of the great saints, one of the great writers of the spiritual life, Ignatius of Loyola. He was born in Loyola, which is why they call him Ignatius of Loyola, I'm sure, in, which is in Spain in 1491. And he grew up with great ideas of being a great knight. In 1509, uh, yeah, 1509 he joined the Spanish army, and uh, he achieved great deeds and was uh, recognised as one of their leaders until 1521 when luckily a cannonball passed between his legs, which was better than passing through his legs. Uh, but on the way through it did damage one of those legs quite severely and he had to undergo quite a bit of surgery, which in those days was not that much fun because they hadn't invented anaesthetics yet. And he spent quite a bit of time in recovering from this surgery and injury. Well, he wanted to read the stories of the great knights. He wanted to read about their daring deeds and the battles they'd fought and the damsels they'd rescued. But the place where he was recovering didn't have so many stories of the great knights. And when he did find one to read, he usually ended up feeling dejected and sad. What this place did have was a lot of biographies of saints. And he discovered to his surprise that when he read those, he felt joy and peace. One of the works he read was the De Vita Christi by Ludolf of Saxony, which I'm sure you've all heard of and some of you might have even read. Maybe not. <laughs> this uh, work took 40 years to write. It was a commentary on the life of Christ, a commentary on the Gospels. And Ludolf of Saxony borrowed extensively from 60 of the fathers of the church. 
He quoted particularly from St. Gregory the Great, St. Basil, St. Augustine of Hippo, and, just to make sure there's a little bit of English influence in there, the Venerable Bede. One of the things that Ludolf proposed in his De Vita Christi was that people place themselves in the actual scene. So place themselves in the scene of the birth of Christ, in the scene of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, in the scene of Jesus healing the blind man, in the scene of Jesus dying on the cross. And then conversing with Christ as a member of that scene. He called this method of prayer the simple contemplation. This type of prayer became the basis of prayer for the rest of Ignatius' life. And it became the basis of his writings about the spiritual life, and it became the basis of his spiritual exercises, which is one of his great gifts to the church today. Well, at the end of his time of convalescence, during a time of prayer, he had a vision of the baby Jesus in the arms of Mary, and to the baby Jesus he confessed all his sins and vowed that he would live his life in the service of Christ. But after he left this place, he realized that he had a whole lot more sins. So he spent another seven days on retreat, confessing his sins at a Benedictine monastery, uh, at the end of which he laid his sword on the altar and took the clothes of a beggar and began living out his life of service. He went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, where he lived with the Franciscans for a while before they sent him back to Europe. He spent 11 years studying in various universities in Spain and France, living his radical life of prayer and poverty, slowly accumulating some others who wanted to live a similar life, and, because it was a little bit different, getting a few beatings and being kicked out of a few cities. Throughout all of this, he took notes, careful notes, of everything that he was experiencing in his prayer life and how others reacted to that. Eventually, in 1534, he decided, with his small group of followers, that it was time that they were officially recognised. And so he went to Pope Paul III, and the Society of Jesus was recognised by the Church. Today, they are more commonly known as Jesuits. And our current Pope, our current Pope, we'll just own him, uh, the current Pope is a Jesuit, the first Jesuit Pope. Now, one of the great gifts of Ignatius was not that he was an original thinker. He wasn't a particularly original thinker, but he was a great scavenger. He was really good at taking what other people had thought and written and reshaping it into some new frameworks. And so he has become one of the great writers about the spiritual life. One of the things he developed was a 30-day silent retreat. Now, I'm sure you'll all be lining up wanting to go on this. 30 days of silence, with a few days on either end just to kind of get in the silence and a few days at the end to get out of the silence. 
To become a Jesuit, you have to go through two 30-day silent retreats before you get to your ordination. And then you have to regularly spend time on 30-day silent retreats throughout your life. I think it's one of the reasons why they have given popes so much difficulty over the last 500 years, which is surprising given that they're one of the only orders that have a fourth vow. Most of them have poverty, chastity and obedience, but the Jesuits also have obedience to the Pope, which is ironic because I think of all the religious orders, they've given the Pope the most grief, especially over the last hundred years. During this 30-day silent retreat, retreatants go through a series of imaginative prayer experiences. You are invited into various scenes in Jesus' life. Initially, to help you come to face your sins, but then slowly you're invited to reform yourselves in God's love found in Christ, and then to embrace that and truly live that out. One of its other great great gifts was his thinking around consolation and desolation. He described consolation as experiences, experiences which draw us towards God, and desolation as experiences that draw us away from God. Now sometimes we get a little bit confused and think that consolation is when we feel happy and desolation is when we feel sad. But Ignatius says actually sometimes we feel sad during consolation because we realise our sins. And in realising our sins are drawn towards God. And sometimes we feel happy because we have deluded ourselves that the life we are leading is a wonderful life and in fact we are being drawn away from God. So it was deeper than just thinking about am I happy or sad. Out of his writing around consolation and desolation he did a lot of thinking and writing around discernment. How do you make decisions? The prayerful, ongoing making of decisions both big and small. There's lots of books around today about discernment Uh, And most of them are based on Ignatius' work, and a pretty big chunk of them are written by Jesuits. Sometimes we think that discernment is all around big decisions, like when I was deciding, should I become the next vicar of St. George's Gate Park? But in fact, Ignatius would say, we discern every day, and the same kind of prayerful process needs to be engaged in the small decisions as well as the big decisions. And in fact, if you don't use that prayerful process in the small decisions, you'll be really rubbish at it when you try to use it for the big decisions. One of the key processes for Ignatius in making these decisions, discernment, was spending each day reflecting on When have I been drawn to God this day? And when have I been drawn away? The daily examine is not a big thing. It doesn't even particularly take a long time. It just means setting aside a little bit of time, either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, to ask those two really simple little questions. It is a helpful way to learn to see, like the blind man learned to see. To see who we truly are. 
to see who God sees us as. To understand that we are people invited into God's love. And to understand that at times we are people who reject that invitation. It is a way to learn to see God at work in us and in our world. It is a means by which we can, like that blind man, be healed and be called the once blind man or the previously blind man. So for the next week I invite you to ask yourself at the end of each day, what am I most thankful for? How have I experienced God this day? And what am I least thankful for? How have I been led astray? Sometimes people find it helpful to write those reflections down and then to look back over them after a period of time to see what are the common themes and what are the ways that we are constantly being drawn away and what are the ways that God often invites us into God's love. And often these two questions can lead to times of prayer. Spoken prayers and listening prayers. So I invite you now, as we finish the sermon, to spend a few moments reflecting on what am I most thankful for? How have I experienced God this day, yesterday? And what am I least thankful for? How have I been led astray? And then after a moment or two, Joyce will lead us in our intercessions.